Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is Johanna Bozua, the executive director of the Climate and Community Project, which is a climate justice policy organization. So, as you may have heard, um, last week the Inflation Reduction Act passed uh, Congress, which is simultaneously the largest climate legislation that has ever made it through U.S. Congress um, and contains a lot of provisions that are friendly to fossil fuel interests um, and have made a lot of climate justice organizations upset. Um, So how did we get here? What's actually in the bill? What are the good parts? What are the bad parts? What are the ugly parts? Um, And where do we go next if we want to mitigate the damage of the bad parts and maybe even ask for more? Um, so that's what uh, I talked to Johanna about. Um, her organization has put forward an analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, focusing on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, so I will link that in the episode description if you want more detail. Um, there's also a lot of good detail in this conversation. I hope you enjoy um, I should also note that a couple questions about the Inflation Reduction Act I got from some of you, uh, listeners who support me on Patreon by making a small monthly financial contribution. Um, I invited to submit questions about the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and so you too uh, can be invited to do parts of my job for me <laughs> if you uh, support this podcast on Patreon. The lowest level works out to roughly a dollar an episode, the next one roughly two dollars an episode. You'll also get early access to episodes um, at some levels, membership in the Storytelling Animals Book Club, um, and other perks that hopefully make it worth it to you. Speaking of that book club, we are one week away from our group discussion of As Long As Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock by Dina Julia Whitaker. Um, it's a short book if you're able to get it. Uh, hopefully you will be able to read it within a week. Um, even if you aren't able to read it, I'm going to link in the episode description um, a couple book reviews of it that I thought were super helpful, I'll link to a couple podcasts that she did about the book, interviews she did. Um, so I invite you to join even if you haven't been able to read the book, just because the issues are so important um, about how you know an indigenous perspective on environmental justice um, really changes how we view the relevant issues. So if you want to join that book club, um, the two ways to do that are to uh, subscribe on Patreon, as I mentioned, or to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. You can attend a book club uh, as a trial member. Um, I put a link to that, my newsletter, in the episode description as well. Okay. Back to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, Here's my interview with Johanna. Hi, I'm here with Johanna Bozwa, the Executive Director of the Climate and Community Project. Uh, Johanna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Dayton, for having me. Yeah, um, so maybe before we get started uh, too much on the Inflation Reduction Act, I was wondering if you could just tell listeners, you know, a little bit about who you are, your experience in climate policy, and what the Climate and Community Project is. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been working on kind of climate and energy issues for a long time now. Um, Originally kind of started off working on 
anti-fossil fuel work and really then wanted to answer the question, what is the energy system we're building in, in the next, uh, you know, in this next generation? Um, and that really led me to think a lot about energy justice and what, how are we going to build the next system? Um, and have worked a lot on utility justice, energy, um, and what the transition to renewables is going to look like and how we actually center, um, people and the folks who have, uh, were, exploited and extracted in in the previous system um, to ensure that that doesn't happen in the next. And uh, I work for the Climate Community Project. We're a relatively new organization or a think tank that is committed to kind of the tenets of the Green New Deal and climate justice. Uh, we're a network of academics and researchers uh, coming at this from a kind of an explicit like climate left perspective and trying to add detail to the demands of the climate movement. Uh, so we've produced uh, projects like the Green New Deal for public schools um, that uh, Representative Jamal Momin has uh, built a, a piece of comprehensive legislation around. Uh, we've worked on um, a range of issues, including even uh, things like climate reparations and what that looks like with um Alufamu Taiwo and uh, pa uh, Patrick Bigger. So um, a range of different things, but very much committed to building the decade of the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alufamu was actually one of the first guests on this podcast about ah! his Reconsidering Reparations books. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. So yeah, he was great. So before we kind of zoom into kind of the, the nuts and bolts, um, maybe we could uh, take the zoomed out perspective and just like, you know, I think we're recording this on Monday, August 15th. Uh, the, it passed the Senate maybe about a week ago. The Inflation Reduction Act passed the House, I think Friday. Biden said he's going to sign it. Um, so what are kind of the, the, the two or three major big picture takeaways before we get into details? Yeah. So the major takeaways from uh, my perspective is that the Inflation Reduction Act, as it currently stands, like it is going to be uh, the biggest investment in climate that we've seen coming out of the federal government in the United States. Uh, that said, it is, um, it, and it's about $369 billion going into climate-related um, and energy-related issues. Um, that is going to be a massive investment, it, but it still pales in comparison to what we really need in order to tackle the climate crisis. Uh, this was a bill ultimately built in collaboration between um, Senator Chuck Schumer and uh, Senator Manchin, uh, which means that uh, there's a lot of good in this bill for investing in renewable energy, but there is also a lot of bad and ugly, um, including a, investments actually in that will perpetuate the fossil fuel industry. Um, so it, it's been a very long journey to actually getting something that would pass and get past Mansion. Um, and and it, we, we should definitely see this as a, a, the climate movement increasing its power and being able to, um, you know, get a major piece of legislation through, but 
we should be very clear as well that there are still communities that are sacrificed via this bill. Mm -hmm. So how did we get to this point? Um, Because, you know, listeners might remember um, discussions like a year or so ago about Build Back Better, and and that was going to be in tandem with a bipartisan infrastructure bill, but uh, then that those talks collapsed, everyone thought it was dead, and then kind of here we are and we have a bill that's uh, not as good, but still something. So how, what, what happened over the last year? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing to take it back, maybe even a little bit further to, uh, you know, Sunrise Movement sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office. Um, One thing that really changed in that moment, I think, and what we've seen is this building towards a Green New Deal and this conception that um, like climate action is not austerity. Climate action is investment. And I think that's one thing I'm taking away from this moment in terms of how the political economy is shifting is that the climate movement has been able to push a message that the client investing in climate is an investment in our communities. Um, and so the Green New Deal escalated over the past um, couple of years. Um, and then we had, obviously, COVID hit. There was this need for injection Um, As Biden comes into the White House, uh, yes, as you mentioned, we had the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then Build Back Better was really Biden's big, we are investing in our economy and like this will also be in part a climate bill. And um, when those two were split, uh, it allowed Manchin to basically stop um, the project in its tracks and um, there have been basically over the past year an exhausting process of almost almost getting a bill, almost getting it past the finish line, and then um, Mansion and Cinema um, pulling the plug, and then kind of out of nowhere um, a few weeks ago. So after there was a group of. Um, Congressional staffers, actually, who realized kind of the the scale of the crisis and the fact that nothing was going to get passed. And they actually had a sit in in Schumer's office. And um, that really brought it to um, Schumer's attention and saw he saw the pressure. And then just, uh, I think, a couple days after that, um, we saw Manchin and Schumer say, we have... Um, we've come to an agreement and um, we've got we've got the Inflation Reduction Act. So uh, it I think that for a lot of people in the climate movement, um, it's been a really stressful and tenuous uh, year. Um, and I think right now uh, we've got a bill that um, people are still kind of reeling from. Honestly, uh, it was a backdoor bill in a lot of ways um, that folks were um, have been reacting to and trying to figure out and navigate how they how they feel about it. Yeah. So so you you released while everyone was reeling from it, uh, the the Climate and Community Project released an analysis of the deal that separated uh, into the good, the bad and the ugly, which 
I kind of interpret as, you know, I mean, the good, I guess, is straightforward. The bad uh, were were often kind of omissions uh, mm-hmm. and ways in which it didn't go far enough or didn't go very far at all. And the ugly is, is a few spaces where it's genuinely counterproductive, um, helpful to, to fossil fuel interests. Um, so maybe let's start with uh, the, <laughs> the good. Um, and just kind of, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of tax credits in this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are what are the good ones and what are they going to do? Or at least the, the highlights. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the biggest things that this bill does is it extends the tax credits for renewable energy or, or clean energy. And uh, these are tax credits that have been in place in the past, but they're always um, in the peril of phase out, just about to uh, be lost. Um, And what this does, this bill does, is it says, hey, clean energy, we are going to keep on um, providing you and subsidizing you um, so that we can bring in this new era of renewables. And it does that by providing 10 years of um, these subsidies at 30%. Um, and the, a really exciting thing associated with these tax credits are actually that you don't get the full tax credit unless you pay your workers prevailing wages. And I think that's a huge, huge win um, when it comes to renewable energy and and how we're transforming the sector. Because one of the things that's often said, um, it especially by workers countering um, the renewable energy build out is like, hey, y'all, like, at least in the fossil fuel industry, we have some, we have unions, we've like fought our, for our contracts, like these are good working jobs and, and solar, we're looking at not, not as great jobs. It doesn't have kind of the, it's not unionized. And so this is an opportunity to say like, we are actually making renewable energy jobs, good jobs uh, by doing so. So if you do not pay prevailing wages, you'll, I believe, get a 6% um, subsidy of your project, but it's 30% if you do pay prevailing wages. And another really exciting thing about these tax credits is the fact that um, there is this thing called direct pay. So to, to give a little bit of context, in order, to, um, in order to get access to subsidies in the form of tax credits, you have to pay a certain amount of taxes or you have to have what's called a tax appetite. And um, it turns out if you are either a young company that um, doesn't, you know, it's just coming to be or you're a nonprofit that doesn't pay taxes or even if you are a government entity, if you are a publicly owned entity, you don't pay taxes. So you don't have a tax appetite. And um, what was happening is this just kind of like financialization of the deployment of renewable energy because all of these uh, young companies or um, governments would have to go to um, Wall Street to um, set up these really complicated deals, basically, that are called tax ex- equity partnerships 
um, so that uh, the Wall Street um, would be able to take would take the credit for the tax um, and use it kind of as like a tax shelter in some regards and then kind of launder it through so that then um, the companies would get um, close to that 30% level or the, you know, government entity. So what having direct pay will do is it means that it's just a direct subsidy to the entity, which means that we're going to be able to see government, local government, public, uh, public power, can, um, uh, you know, municipal utilities, rural electric co-ops, um, nonprofits, churches, for instance, even be able to get that subsidy directly and cut out the increasing financialization that was happening with our next energy system. So that's actually a really fantastic thing to see coming um, down the pipe. And then also on housing, um, there the bill will also expand tax incentives for households specifically for um, energy efficiency. Um, I think each household, um, like if you're an owner of your household, will get um, up to $7,500. Um, and so that's, that's a really exciting thing that will help us electrify and make our houses more efficient on the good end of the spectrum. Um, and, and I'll add one last um, tax incentives that's exciting uh, to a certain degree is um, that, you know, they're trying, uh, President Biden has made electric vehicles a big part of his um, proposal. And so this um, would incentivize um, electric ve- more electric vehicles on the road and also that those um, electric vehicles are um, ha- are manufactured and um, sourced from the United States. And are the um, consumer-based uh, or the consumer-oriented tax credits, are those direct pay as well? I believe they will, yes. Okay. Yes, they will. I think that could be an obstacle where if you aren't paying a lot of taxes, i.e. if you aren't rich, then you wouldn't get as much of a subsidy would seem to be somewhat of a perverse way of doing it. Uh, Yeah. And I will say on that note that um, to get a little bit into the, to the bad of these types of tax incentives, I think that when it comes to kind of the consumer facing ones, there is a distinction. There isn't going to be a difference with who has access to these because it still is predicated upon, um, in the case of the efficiency and electrification, it is still predicated on home ownership. And as we know from there, like the United, in the United States, we have a racial bias of home ownership. And uh, that means that whiter, wealthier households are the ones that are going to have access to those tax incentives. And that was a really big cut from Build Back Better, which was going to be putting $60 billion directly into public housing. Um, and now that that will be gone and um, it, and it's much, much lower levels. Um so from, from our perspective at Climate and Community Project, we see this as a really big um, lost opportunity and uh, in terms of this actually helping people who are most affected by inflation and also on the front lines of climate change in a lot of ways. It's, it's tenants. It's people who are having a hard time paying their bills. And um, the, 
we think that the bill should have definitely gone further and really directly tackled the issue of tenants and efficiency and how to lower their bills um, on a on a daily basis as compared to some of the uh, kind of up, more upper middle class folks who are going to get access to um, the tax incentives. Mm-hmm. If if any of my listeners do own their homes, um, what sorts of, you know, when we talk about home efficiency, what what types of things will they be able to get tax credits for? Uh, a great example is heat pumps. Uh, you know, we absolutely need to be switching over. So a lot of, uh, depending on where you live uh, in the United States, a lot of people are hooked up to natural gas um, and, you know, get their uh, heating from pipelines that come through. And um, this is an opportunity by installing heat pumps in your home to actually electrify your entire house. And um, heat pump installations will uh, also, you know, often make it so that you can have access to both heat and um, cooling needs, which you know, in places I, I live in Portland, Maine these days, and I'll tell you that a lot of places are not equipped now to handle the the higher energy uh, or the um, the higher heat levels that we have. So, um, you know, having access to heat pumps will be a really big thing. It also includes like weatherization and insulation uh, being shifted uh, as well. So there, I think there are numerous things that folks will be able to um, install and receive subsidy for. Cool. Um, so, so just cause you already uh, touched on it. Um, I, 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 for my, the Patreon supporters of this podcast, I, I asked them what, what questions they have about the inflation reduction act. And one question I got was what happened to the e-bike rebates from build back better? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, they're, I think, basically they're gone. <laughs> they are, uh, and and that's a real, that's a real shame. Um, one of the things with this bill, that I mean, it's great. We need to electrify our transportation, but this bill very much focuses on perpetuating perpetuating the age of the car and a car centric economy in the United States. And um, the Climate Community Project member Yona Freemark has done a lot of really incredible research and writing on this and was one of the main contributors for our transportation section of our uh, bill review. And um, what we really need to be building right now um, is a multimodal transportation system. We need something that is um, going to allow people to have e-bikes. It's going to allow them to take uh, electrified buses places that is investing in, you know, even like the uh, bus trolleys uh, or um, in our subway systems, because that is really a key way uh, when people are hurting at the pump, which they, you know, we currently are with increasing prices um, being able to take the subway or public transportation is again going to support people who feel inflation the most. Um, and th- that is where we're seeing um, this bill fall short, sadly, is that it does not, it, it basically zeroes out any of the Build Back Better 
funding for public transportation and limits the our ability to kind of build out kind of the multimodal um, transportation like e-bikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another even within cars, um, I saw that you can get a, a much bigger tax credit subsidy for an SUV than you can even just for a normal sized car. Right, exactly. And uh, what we've seen is that, you know, we keep, uh, obviously the United States is known for its big, big cars, but those are actually like incredibly unsafe too. Uh, you know, the as we keep on building these entities, like the smaller cars, the more efficient cars, like the that take are also going to require less battery materials even um, are not being the ones that are incentivized to the, the same degree. And that is bad from a supply chain perspective and us actually being able to produce those cars, but also from a safety perspective of people on the road too. Mm-hmm. Um, so another question from a, a Patreon supporter is uh, overall, what was the biggest thing Manchin took away from the final bill? So I guess, I guess from Build Back Better to Inflation Reduction Act, what's you know one of the biggest things that didn't make it through? That didn't make it through, yeah. One of the biggest things that was lost was the Clean Energy Payment Program, CEPP, which was in Build Back Better, that basically said, um, if you keep, um, it basically incentivized utilities and to electrify the um, energy system and to put on more clean energy. And then if you didn't uh, if you didn't achieve those goals, you were then penalized and had to pay the federal government that then was going to be redirected towards like building more renewables. That was cut. And I think that's something that we saw across the board when it, uh, when it came to um, Build Back Mansion instead of Build Back Better, is that in st- we lost a lot of our sticks. Um, and in particular, we saw... Um, clean energy and fossil fuels almost treated on the same plane. Um, it, this is not, to be very clear, this bill does not wind down the fossil fuel industry. It absolutely does not. In fact, um, there is um, many things that are going to perpetuate the fossil fuel industry. And I think that is because of Manchin. Um one a, a very clear example of this, Dayton, is the quid pro quo that's in there that basically says that you need to hold a lease the year before for offshore um, fossil fuels um, in order to even ha- hold a lease for offshore wind. Um, and you know what we are seeing through that is that the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska are going to feel the brunt of that and are already, the Gulf and the South have already been seen as um, a sacrifice zone. And that just locks it in. This is the area where uh, apparently they want to still be building out oil and gas. And um, and this is where all of the big storms are coming through. Hurricane season is becoming all the more intense. And they're saying, no, we're going to keep on building oil and gas infrastructure into the future. And another really clear example um, is the, the fact that Manchin is trying to 
push through a side deal associated with the Inflation Reduction Act as part of him getting what he wants. And the side deal is the a really clear thing that actually we we need to be extremely vigilant on and we need to be fighting actively, which um, Manchin wants um, because it's, it's a per, it's it looks at um, NEPA and looks at how we permit uh, energy infrastructure. And basically he wants to um, accelerate permitting processes um, l- limit the amount of time that environmental justice communities basically have to react to new infrastructure coming in and green light explicitly the Mountain Valley pipeline. Um, and so, and that is going all so much of what we're gaining through the Inflation Reduction Act, um, Inflation, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the tax credits, for instance, for clean energy, we are going to be losing if we are ramming through fossil fuel projects in the next couple of years, if that um, side deal passes. So do we expect that side deal to pass or what is the status of that side deal? What is the status of that side deal? Absolutely. So it's um, because it's a permitting bill, it doesn't fall under reconciliation. Um, So that means that they actually have to like get, uh, Republicans on board, it has to, you know, get that kind of like bigger majority. And, but what Manchin is trying to do is connect it to like basically funding the government, right. Through continuing resolution. Um, and that, um, that means that if, um, we try to hold that up, it could actually, um, it, you know, the, go- the government, if we don't pass the continuing resolution, like the government would shut down. So there is currently a movement, um, of people who are saying absolutely do not pass, like do not connect this to the continuing resolution. This, um, side deal cannot pass and we need to, um, eliminate it. There is a, like, there is a pathway for us to get that done. And I think the progressive, um, progressives and climate activists, should be put throwing their weight um, to stop this permitting bill um, because of the extremely detrimental effects. Okay, and yeah, that uh, that responds to the the last question from a Patreon supporter, which is, uh, you know, what are the avenues that realistically remain to to stop this pipeline? And I guess would there I would add to that um, if the permitting deal goes through, are there still avenues to to stop that pipeline, do you know? Uh, well, I, they are hindered. They are hindered. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the w- main ways that um, MVP organizers and activists have used is permitting. Um, I do not, I think that we are going to see escalated, um, like, direct action. I think there are ways to uh, continue to contest it in the courts. Um, so I, I don't think it's our only way to do it, but it is like one of the most critical ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the best, the best way for us to stop the building of the MVP is to stop this side deal. Mm-hmm. One defense of the permitting bill, uh, permitting deal that I've seen is that it might also, you know, the bad news is maybe it helps to speed up. Uh, building pipelines. Uh, but the good news, some people argue, is that it could help us speed up um, you know, building renewable energy and transmission lines as well. 
Is there anything to this or? My answer is no. <laughs> so uh, I would say, so from my perspective, this is a this is a fossil fuel giveaway. It is very directed at the fossil fuel industry. Um, and renewable energy, I would say like that that's a, it's a false choice in some ways. Like I do believe that we need to think about how we are rolling out our renewable energy, but the the answer is not to streamline. The answer is not to roll over environmental justice communities that may have like are reckoning with this infrastructure coming in. Um, we actually need to be investing more money in NEPA and building robust po- uh, processes so that we can get these things passed. Uh, what one thing I'll bring up is uh, in Denmark. Uh, they have been able to successfully build out a massive amount of offshore wind. And in order to bring folks on board, what they did is they offered partial ownership of the offshore wind infrastructure to communities that were going to be directly, um, like we'll be able to see it. It's in their jurisdiction. Um, and that actually created and cultivated a relationship to that um, renewable en- infrastructure that it was theirs. It was something that they are proud of. And then they also um, attached to that uh, design. And so they were uh, they were consulted on the design of the offshore wind. So if you are in Denmark, it's like aesthetically pleasing offshore wind. And that, that actually helped them build with local communities. They are going to see the benefit of the infrastructure and they had a say in what it looked like. Uh, and in my mind, that is a far more robust process to go through. It's uh, far more consultative and um, shares the benefit of the renew- uh, of renewable energy um, in comparison to the alternative that's being proposed here, which is let's like jam this down people's throats. Let's go like move as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, in, in the process, like, uh, potentially hurt communities or, or the environment. Um, so I guess I am of the mind that, yeah, sure. We can, we can think about how we handle renewable energy infrastructure and how we deploy it as quickly as possible. But like, let's, um, let's not make the same mistakes that we have in the past. Let's make sure that what we build is something that's going to be for everyone, not just for a select few um, companies. And I think that we need far more planning when it comes to renewable energy anyway, because it's going to take the land mass associated with building out renewables is far more than fossil fuel infrastructure. And we need to be able to make decisions about, you know, what are we allocating to agriculture? What are we um allocating to wild land, what are we allocating to, um, you know, uh, utility uh, scale solar? Mm-hmm. I, there, was a, there was a good article in the LA Times recently that was about that very question of, of uh, actually bringing in solar and wind and all the land it's going to take. And uh, someone quoted in it, uh, used the phrase, go slow to go fast. Exactly. Uh, basically that when you consult people, make people democratically involved in the process, Maybe it takes a longer from the start, but then they're more invested in it. And, uh, you know, you don't have people starting to oppose it and voting against you or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree that, uh, you know, fast tracking environmental regulations is, they exist for a reason. Um, so yeah, let's talk about, um, 
the models uh, associated with this bill. Um, so the, the kind of overwhelming argument for it when there's all these pros and cons um, is that uh, the, the claim is that it's going to help us reduce emissions um, uh, by 40% by 2030 compared to, I believe, 2005 levels. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that this isn't, you know, it's not the, all that 40% is not all due to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, existing policies and technological trends are already predicted to do a good chunk of that reduction. Um, but, uh, you know, a good chunk of that 40% would be due to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, how, and, and I guess those models also show uh, that the the leases are not um, like the oil leases, oil and gas lease, offshore drilling leases you mentioned are not actually expected anyway in the models to cause that much more emissions. Um, how, I guess, part of me, I, I guess my first instinct is just to like accept accept this and say, well, it looks like it's a worthwhile trade off, or you know, mm. I don't know if I would go that far, but. Um, <laughs> It looks like overall it's going to be positive. Um, part of me then starts to wonder how reliable are models projecting ten years out in the future. You know, when there's all these other factors going on. Um, so, how do you think about the results of models like this? Yeah, um, you know, as you mentioned, like mo- like it, models are not truths they are subjective there are things that we use and like the inputs and our assumptions matter a lot in in building a model and i think they're i think they're very useful tools they let us think about um you know how and make good decisions try to make decisions inform decisions about how we are going to decarbonize our um our country and the world and but I think it is important to remember that assumptions matter. Um, what we've seen is, uh, and also that they're not, you know, set in stone. Um, with some of the mo- models, as you mentioned, like, yes, it says 40% reduction. Um, but what is that in comparison to um, what was already kind of uh, anticipated? Uh, some of the models are showing that like, really this would be about a 7%, um, additional decarbonization from where we currently are, um, set, set for in terms of trajectory of a, you know, current, as you said, technological change and, um, existing policies. Um, the second piece is for me with some of these models from, uh, from, discussions with other academics, people who are in this, in in this realm is that we are not considering, um, exports and like what a permitting deal like this would do. Um, in addition to, you know, what's extracted on those, uh, public lands being shipped abroad. The United States is now, I think if not number one, one of the biggest exporters of fossil fuels in the world, of oil and gas. So we have a major carbon leakage problem. Uh, so even if we say uh, a lot of these models, and I, and I believe the ones, um, you know, rhodium and, and the models that are looking at the Inflation Reduction Act uh, are considering 
domestic carbon emissions, but are not considering um, the outflows, the the oil and gas that's going out on those tankers um, out to Europe, out to Asia. Uh, and that is where we are going to see, like, that is a huge amount of fossil fuel production um, and is going to continue us on um, potential, like, increasing of warming um, if we don't also consider the supply of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So this bill has been controversial, to say the least, among environmental groups. Uh, some of the larger ones um, are taking the stance that, no, it's not perfect, but still worth supporting, even for some celebrating. Um, and then some of the other, you know, grassroots climate justice groups came out, you know, actively opposed, asking people to vote against it. Yeah. Um, so why this disparate response and how can we kind of think through think through this so on one side it's a lot of the green groups that are like you know what uh carbon reduction is carbon reduction like let's go but i think the thing that uh from the environmental justice uh community's perspective is that they got salt like they got they got screwed in this deal. They, and they did, is the answer. They did. Uh, as we've talked about um, already, Dayton, like, uh, this is not something that uh, will... Uh, public. Ho- this does not po- support public housing. It's not really supporting tenants. The um, very... It's been lauded by many groups, like green groups, as well as uh, members of Congress, that there's $60 billion going to environmental justice communities. But that's only like about 15, 16% of this total bill. Uh, And we think about the commitments that Biden has made to Justice 40 and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the rhetoric around, you know, 40% of benefits should be going to environmental justice communities. Like, that's just so far below where we need to be. Um, and then to add insult to injury, we have um, the continued um, development of fossil fuels um, that are going to be affected. Like who that hurts and who that kills is environmental justice communities. It is people on the front lines. Um, this also is a backroom deal, right? Like there is not a lot of like small D democracy involved in this bill. We had ne- been negotiating for now, what, one and a half years. Uh, and the final bill was made in, between Manchin and Schumer. And we were kind of like told to just accept what we got um, after the like constant whittling and whittling down. Um, and I think like, to be clear, uh, I like it. Well, not to be clear, I guess that's a, not the right word to use. Um, this is like provide this bill provides inner turmoil for me as well. I think that, uh, as we say very clearly in, um, our report, this is the good, the bad and the ugly. I think we will see some amount of carbon reduction from this bill. We will see investment. Um, but like we have to keep on fighting against some of the like build out of infrastructure, the car we haven't yet talked about in this bill, but like a huge amount going to carbon dioxide remo- removal and uh, carbon capture and storage. And um, I think that from a movement perspective and the development of our movement moving forward, um, we have a lot 
of like the the climate movement has been really working at like developing a justice lens you know i feel like sierra club a lot of these groups are you know making the commitment and trying trying to and like integrate that lens um and but this kind of like it at the moment that the deal was is being signed um environmental justice communities are like well what what the hell like y'all said that you were going to fight for us but we're the ones on the cutting room floor um, so I think that as we move forward, there's a there's a rift in the climate movement right now um, that I think will have uh, ramifications for years to come uh, in terms of what we're able to accomplish. And, and, and it'll be really interesting to see what coalitions emerge from this and um, and how how folks are picking up the pieces. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Let's look forward. Uh, I think that, you know, we've mentioned some things that are ugly in this bill. Um, some of it is the, you know, mandates for continued oil and gas leasing. Um, some of it is that as much as there are incentives for clean things, uh, there are also incentives for, um, you know, continu- continued fossil fuel use and, you know, through carbon capture and storage, which, I guess I think if we, you know, if we got the technology down, I reliably I would support using it, but I also sure. would not support like counting on it um, <laughs> because when you count on it, you're saying, yeah, it's going to be okay to keep using fossil fuels because we're going to figure out how to, you know, store all the carbon and, and it's going to stop emitting so much. Totally. Um, and, and, and on that, and on that mm-hmm. point, I'll just mention, I totally, I think that we do at this point in our, um, at this point, I, I've really appreciated Holly Jean Buck uh, Buck's work on this and Olafemi Taiwo's uh, work, um, saying that like, okay, we do actually have to think about what the climate left's reaction is to carbon dioxide removal, how we actually consider like achieving 1.5 degrees and who's in charge of that. Um, the problem that I have right now with how CCS is and uh, CDR is coming down is the fact that it um, the current subsidies as they're landing are almost all used for enhanced oil recovery, which um, means that they are um, capturing carbon and then re-injecting it into the ground to um, acquire more oil uh, instead of actually going towards like the removal and like lowering of our um, carbon. So I think, I think it's actually like a really important point for us to keep in, keep on interrogating how the left reacts to carbon dioxide removal and what what our plan is as it becomes more necessary um but yes as you say it's um it isn't technologically where it needs to be to be so feasible and it's being like co-opted by the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. um so what are the these are things that are in the bill that's already passed by yep. both houses of congress um so we aren't going to change the bill um, what can be done moving forward to mitigate the the worst impacts of it, either from a policy lens or just a movement organizing lens? Yeah, um, I think that there are ways both to mitigate the bad and also to um, increase the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is where um, state level organizing, local organizing, is going to matter a huge amount. Um, there's a there's a lot of money coming down now. There is and. Some of that is going to land with, uh, you know, state 
state treasuries. That's gonna it's going to land in state programming, and I think that there are opportunities for folks to take this funding and try to direct it as best as possible towards environmental justice community. So, for instance, um, one actually quite exciting thing is this greenhouse gas reduction fund, and. The Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund is $27 billion that is supposed to go more explicitly towards um, environmental justice communities and uh, to lower greenhouse gases. Um, but it's very under-prescribed right now. Uh, and I think that's actually a really important point, point of contention. And a lot of this money is going to be going down to state-based agencies or quasi-public entities that are green, local green banks. Um, and so I think it's up to us in the movement to say how we're going to use this thing. Are we going to use it for good or um, is it going to kind of fall by the wayside and, you know, keep on perpetuating neoliberalism? Um, so I would say that, like, absolutely, let's try to take the power of that and use it to invest in affordable housing um, efficiency. Use it to invest in, um, you know, distributed renewable energy that will help us help uh, communities amid storms like, uh, you know, a hurricane Yuri or the uh or excuse me the winter storm uh in Texas for instance. So um I think that is a really important point of contention greenhouse gas reduction fund um any of the funding that's coming down towards the state level will be um a really important place for uh communities to uh, to fight for their 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 portion and like what they deserve. Um and I also think um I have spent a lot of my time and research on public ownership campaigns. Uh, so trying to take over from investor-owned utilities and invest in, you know, a publicly owned, democratically governed um, renewable energy utility system. And direct pay, I think, actually opens up space for those uh, campaigns to say, actually, like, this is incredible, like, this will lower the cost even more for us to be, have um, our energy system be publicly owned. So um, I do think there are there is there there is space in this bill and especially since it's now passed for us to contend for power to try to direct this money as best as possible. Um, and also we're probably going to have to uh, you know continue to have um, direct action camps uh, that are uh, blocking the pipelines that will get uh, that will get built or, um, you know, the new fossil fuel infrastructure that's coming down. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for like, you know, you've, you've come up with other plans related to, you know, Green New Deal for public schools or transportation, mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, you know, what is the kind of the policy approach moving forward? How much, you know, hope for further federal action is there? How much will be focused on states and local governments? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, if I'm thinking about what happens next, I think that right before Manchin and Schumer got the deal on the table, Biden was within inches of calling for a climate emergency. And I think we have to push the administration um, especially now that this funding is also coming through the, their administrations, you know, departments of energy department, um, you know, housing departments, um, 
we need to push them and say, okay, that's great, but that does not get you off the hook, Biden. Like, actually, this is the moment that you have to follow up and um, declare a climate emergency, leverage your power um, from an executive action perspective, and also use that power to stop some of this fossil fuel infrastructure stuff. He actually has a huge amount of power to do that. And the um, People versus Fossil Fuels campaign um, has been very effective at um, showing what Biden could be doing and putting the pressure on. Um, what, is, what would a climate emergency mean? Yeah, so uh, a climate emergency would open up a bunch of additional avenues for him to to work uh to move and and use his executive authority um and it would uh unleash you know his ability to like reappropriate funds towards certain things uh another example is there's the stafford act which would allow him to um invest more in uh in the case of emergent um emergencies so it would invest in fema they could use that for you know renewable energy to go there he's already utilized and this is, doesn't have to require um a climate emergency but he's already started to use his executive powers for things like the defense production act to um invest and subsidize and uh kind of catalyze um production of renewable energy goods um, so there's a range of different things, and the Center for Biological Diversity has done a huge amount of research showing how um, they could direct the administration w- within a climate emergency um, to leverage more climate action. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, you were, you were going on about... Uh... Oh, yes. Um, that's right. That's right. The other things. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, the U- Biden should be pressured to use his executive authority Um we should also be uh, ratcheting up ambition at the state and local level. I think um, there are really incredible uh, campaigns that are out there right now and programs that folks are building. I think one really, really impressive example is in Pennsylvania. Um, And Senator Nikhil Saval has been able to um, develop the Whole Homes Repair Act, which would actually be a a one-stop shop for people in Pennsylvania um, to um, make their houses more efficient. And I could imagine with this funding coming through that they could actually kind of capture some of that funding and helping people to actually access it as well. So I think... um, preparing and and ensuring that the funding come da- comes down in a really powerful way will be really um, important in this next era. And at the, at the congressional level, um, we have the midterms coming up. It's not looking great for the Democratic Party, um, but we still do have a growing progressive wing. We have um, Greg Kassar coming in from Texas. We have Summer Lee coming in from Pennsylvania. Like the squad is growing. Um, and while we may lose power on the short term, I think it's incredibly important for us to continue to build up the capacity of the progressive left in Congress so that once we have power again, um, we are fa- we are prepared and ready for a, um, a more uh, liberatory sense of how we... It, introduce the Green New Deal so that we can go further than what we got in the Inflation Reduction Act 
um, and get far closer to the the Green New Deal because I I don't think we can give up on Congress completely, but mm-hmm. we need to um, be preparing the state level for additional capacity and funds on climate. Uh, be pushing at the state level for green industrial policy and state level green new deals while bolstering and building political power um, and like the coalition space for um, Congress to move uh, hopefully on the longer term. Yeah. It it feels to me like, you know, as much as we would have liked to get so much more now, um, you know, and as much as it feels like, uh, you know, this can't wait two years the only thing worse than waiting two years is waiting three years. Totally. Um, so to be, to be, yeah, prepared to, to pass stuff that's even better next time feels yeah. important. Um, yeah. So I just, I just want to ask kind of a couple grab bag questions with our last few minutes um, that we didn't, that we haven't touched on yet. Um, the first is about um, like mining and uh, mineral resources. So um, you did mention, I believe, that the um, the subsidies for electric vehicles um, are are trying to require uh, supply chains that are, I guess, minerals coming as much from the United mm-hmm. States as possible. Uh, yep. What is the what are the pros and cons of this? Hmm. Um, yeah. And what uh yeah what kind of moving forward can be can be done better in the the mining world totally totally um well a climate community project member uh theoria francos has been really just on top of this doing incredible research again helped us on that section of our report on um the inflation reduction act and and we have kind of increasing work on on mining um, in the next, uh, you know, what, what's extraction look like in, in the next horizon of uh, climate action? And um, from, uh, like, the good perspective, like, there is this, a lot of the bill focuses on onshoring um, lithium and battery development. And f- right now, a lot of that is concentrated, um, a huge amount of, like, PV is coming from um, our. I think it's ninety five percent of like PV components are made with from um, in China. So having more geographic diversity, um, regionalizing supply chains can be very useful just in terms of um, disruption. What one of the problems though is that um, in the United States. We have archaic mining laws, and they and they are not meant to care for the people who live around the mining. So right now, the mining law um, on the books is from eight, it's called the eighteen seventy two mining law, and it really has not been updated since then. Um, which means that it's not really considering envir- environmental protection as much as it should community protection. Um, and there are examples like the people uh, of Red Mountain um, who are at these um, places of extraction that are trying to fight back against uh, against that. So um, I think that in order for us to be doing some of this onshoring, we have to be very clear that like we need to be changing those laws 
ensuring that um, we have like best practices for extraction and that we aren't um, ensuring the same sorts of exploitation that we've seen in the past. Um, One of the things from just like a supply chain management perspective is right now the critical minerals and like the the tax credits as they're sorted um, will be hard to reach. Like right now, electric vehicles that are on market, like basically don't qualify um, for the tax credit because they don't have the number of like required component parts from the United States or um, so. So that kind of poses a logistical problem um, for us as we continue, like as we're building out these batteries. But I think the the bottom line for me is how do we ensure the most like justice oriented approach towards battery development? And also, um, how do we limit the amount of batteries that we're bringing on market and, um, and think about how we're using our limited resources and how we limit um, harm of mining by also limiting the uh, number of batteries. And I think that's one of the things that this Inflation Reduction Act's focus on electric vehicles misses out on because um, investing in public transportation also would have the opportunity for us to lower the amount of batteries we need to use because we don't have to have one battery per car. Um, Instead, you have one maybe slightly bigger battery for a bus, um, but you have 100 people in that bus, not just one person. Um, So I think that there's actually, like, when it comes to managing the transition, some of those things that we need to be talking about and thinking about more. And the Climate Community Project, we're actually working on some um, material analysis, um, materials analysis with some industrial ecologists at um, UC Davis, uh, along with Theo Rio Francos, um, to really start charting out what what do our transportation pathways mean for U.S. you know domestic um, extraction, but also international extraction too? You know, what does this do for Chile, uh, for Mexico, for all these places that we are um, currently um, will be new horizons of extraction um, that uh, Thea has written a lot about as well. Sorry, that was probably uh, a longer uh, jump into that than uh, you were anticipating. No, that was great. I, it's an it's definitely an area of interest for me. I I had Thea on the show a few months back as well. Oh, um, fantastic! So oh. I guess slowly getting every climate and community project member on <laughs> storytelling animals. Oh my um, gosh, I love it. <laughs> but yeah, I guess just sort of one last question is just uh, kind of noticing that one thing we haven't talked about. Um, is like agriculture and land use policy. Mm. Um, Is there, I've seen mixed things about the bill when it comes to that. Um, Mm. So what what is there when it comes to ag and and land use? Yeah, so there's not as much as there really should be. We wrote, um, because we have kind of capacity on staff, um, our research director, Patrick Bigger, has done a lot in, in forestry. And um, overall, there's there is some funding that's going to kind of public land management to kind of supporting national park services because they're like wildly understaffed for considering things like how we handle the increasing number of wildfires or how we're actually like um, building in kind of ecological resilience. 
Um, so that's, that's good, but it's just, it's so, so small. Um, and there, so it's just not, it's not really considering how, how much we should be investing in, um, things like forest management, like land management. Um, they're also one of the things that we kind of identified as an ugly, uh, in, in that section was the, there's basically a, uh, $150 million for, um, this sort of like carbon offset scheme. Um, and these have, uh, Patrick Bigger has talked a lot about the offset system and how it really does operate as a, um, the offsets are quite a false solution that are not actually delivering on climate promises as they should. So um, I think that's one thing that we saw as lacking, as well as the fact that um, tribal adaptation um, should be far more considered in um, programs like this, where like um, tribal communities have so much um, historic knowledge on um, managing the lands of the United States and are often kind of cast aside and not supported. Um, So that's something that we really wish was better articulated in the Inflation Reduction Act and something that um, we have, we have a piece coming out um, I think later this week. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for another uh, climate community project uh, report coming out on um, forest management and the potential of um, building good jobs and supporting um, tribal land management in the process. Well, cool. I look forward to that. Um, And is there anything else you want to add about any of this? No, thank you so much, Shayton, for the space to, um, to kind of discuss what's in the IRA uh, and, and how we move forward. I think like, for me, this is a step. Um, it's a, an imperfect step. Uh, and like th- the reality is that we just have to keep on fighting for a Green New Deal. Uh, and we have to keep on fighting for those to be like justice centered and like actually uh, need to build a like multiracial uh, movement uh, for climate justice. So thank you so much for hosting this podcast and uh, bringing so many uh, people on uh, to, to talk about our climate futures. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. That was Johanna Bozwa of the Climate and Community Project. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to those Patreon supporters who submitted questions for me to ask Johanna. Um, Thank you so much to all the Patreon supporters who keep this podcast going. Um, And thank you to those climate justice movement advocates who either fought for this and or are uh, fighting for something better. I also wanted to apologize. I had my uh, external microphone plugged in, but for some reason it recorded my audio for the interview on the computer speaker. So if you're missing that uh, patented crisp storytelling animals audio, uh, it'll be back next week or next episode, I should say. Um, Next week, there is no episode um, as we're having book club, but there will be an episode the week after that. Hope to see some of you at our As Long As Grass Grows book club next week. Um, And if you missed that, we're also doing The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler on Thursday, September 29th. Uh, More link, more info about that in the episode description. One last clarification I want to make. Um, Feel free to turn off the episode now. But, um, you know, I asked Johanna about the models and she mentioned that the difference between business as usual uh, and... The Inflation Reduction Act is only a 7% reduction in U.S. emissions. Um, 
This comes from an estimate uh, from the Rhodium Group. There are other estimates out there. You may have seen one that's up to a 15% difference. Um, I guess I only clarify this. Uh, in case you've seen a different number out there, you aren't confused. But as we talked about, we won't know for sure uh, how much emissions are reduced until it happens. Um, and as Johanna mentioned, there's other things we can do to keep bending that curve of emissions downward um, faster and faster. All right. Um, thanks again for listening and hope you have a good day.